the mission on mission. And hopefully it's going to make sense by the end of this, but let me, um, let me get going with a story to come and catch what I'm trying to say. Hopefully it's going to put a bit of legs to this and be able to be carried out uh, with the help of this illustration. So in 2008, Kaz and I, uh, not yet with kids, went on an African adventure. So some of you know the story, so forgive me if you're hearing it again, but we went on an African adventure and part of it was um, in Mozambique and we found ourselves um, on the coastline waiting for a local boat to doubt to come and pick us up and it was going to take us across to an island called Vazaruto. And, um, and so late afternoon the boat arrives and um, we put all our stuff on the boat and uh, we push out and we start heading out. And it is one of these moments in life, just see it into your memory, just for the sheer beauty and uniqueness of it. On a, on a local boat heading out and in the distance you can see a tiny little island that's getting bigger and bigger. It's a near perfect sky with a couple of clouds in, in, the, in the sky. There's uh, not a breath of wind. The water is not too cold and not too hot. It's just perfect. And you're kind of going out and the sun is starting to go down. It's idyllic. It's beautiful. It's stunning. And uh, as we're going along, the sun goes down. Sunset even more beautiful. And then this full moon comes up. And so we exchange the one for the other. And it's just this incredibly beautiful moment of kind of getting darker, full moon coming up. And it's just beautiful. And this full moon's kind of sending a spotlight. Uh, out upon the ocean and lighting up this island that we're heading to on the other side. Uh, and um, as we're going, um, there are these little clouds that would come in front of the moon, and as it came in front of the moon, and of course every now and then there would be this dark shadow that would then come over the, the boat and where we were. Uh, and so remember, it's a local guy, it's a local fisherman, it's his boat, and we're sitting on there enjoying this, and, um, and uh, next thing, um, out of nowhere, Kaz jumps up and literally is on the edge of the boat, hanging on the edge of the boat. And she's, she's balancing there, holding on, and on one side she's got hundreds of meters of deep, deep water, shark-infested ocean. And she's in that moment preferring to be there than in the safety of the boat because there's something moving in the bottom of the boat, almost like water in the bottom of the boat. And what it was was in the darkness of the cloud coming in front of the moon, the cockroaches in the boat felt safe in their hundreds to come and swarm around. And so Kaz was on the end of the boat hanging there saying, cockroaches, cockroaches, staring at them in that exact same voice. And so, and so every time the clouds came in front of the moon, these cockroaches would come out and they would just stacks and stacks of them. And you kind of... And eventually we got to the other side, and as we got to the other side, um, and looking back, what happened was, there was this idyllic, beautiful journey, this incredible place that we were going to, looking forward to. And in the midst of that, instead of looking out there, we got distracted with the cockroaches in the boat that came and ruined something of that moment, something of that journey for us. And we lost the essence of what we were doing, going out, heading, and enjoying this incredible moment. And this is true of life. That there are cockroaches in this life, whether it's, I don't know, binge-watching series, or a bad debt, or an overloaded schedule, or too many extra murals for the kids. 
Um, there are these cockroaches that come in our lives and they come and they distract us. And they rob us of what's most important. They rob us of the essence of uh, those things that uh, are valuable to us. And this is also true within the life of the church, that there are cockroaches that are intense on coming and distracting us and robbing us of what we're doing and why we're doing it and robbing us of the essence and the joy of the journey that we're on. And so what I want to do today with um, the next... And I know I can be long-winded, so I'm going to try and not be long-winded and do this succinctly. Is I want to come and, by looking back at the life of Paul, I want to highlight a couple of cockroaches in the life of the church and what we can do to ensure that we don't give those cockroaches power to come and distract and rob us. And so... The Apostle Paul. We're going to anchor ourselves in Acts chapter 21 and 22, picking up two sections there. Um, I don't know how many of you would have um, looked at a preach on Acts chapter 21, 17 to 24 before. Uh, It's a fairly innocuous passage of Scripture that seems like there's not too much going on there, but the deeper you look, the more profound it is. And so the Apostle Paul uh, is coming uh, after... um, several missionary journeys uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and he's coming to Jerusalem off the back of several people, including, um, who was the prophet? Was it Agabus? Do you remember? That said he mustn't go. Was it Agabus? That um, there were elders in the church, I think it was in Ephesus and Agabus, who came and said, don't go, don't go. Uh, and so he's coming now to Jerusalem. And it's something of a homecoming. This is where he was based. This is um, the, the head of the church uh, so to say, in that day, uh, it's where he would have come and gotten his training as a Pharisee. He's coming back and there are those who are saying, don't go back, don't go back, because they're worried he's going to get arrested. And this is the inception point to his arrest. And so reading in verse 17, it says, We had come to Jerusalem, and the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So let me just stop there very quickly and say that, Uh, This is Luke, Dr. Luke, writing this book, the book of Acts. He's also the author of the Gospel of Luke. And these two books kind of go together. And there's a lot of uh, linkage between the two books. It's a stunning uh, series of two letters uh, written to someone called Theophilus. And uh, there are those that would say Theophilus was a benefactor to Paul. And this was a letter to come and say, yeah, your finances have been well spent. You know, this is what's been going on. Uh, But there are others that say that Theophilus was actually a lawyer uh, that represented Paul. And these letters were to come and get him up to speed with what was going on uh, in terms of Paul's life and his case and what was happening. And so, carrying on there, it says, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the Lord. And they have been told about you and what you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. To forsake forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. 
We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay for their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And so as we look at that, it's a bit of a homecoming and maybe a bit of an anticlimax. But more than that, what is happening there? And so like I said, on the surface it can seem a little innocuous. But if we go a little bit deeper, there's a lot going on here. And so it starts off and it says, we come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And so Paul arrives in Jerusalem and a, a nondescript group of people that's simply labeled the brothers received us gladly. And then it says, Paul went with us on the following day. So the next day now, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. And so this seems a little bit strange to me that there's this rock star of the early church who is an incredible ambassador for the gospel, who's taken the gospel far and wide and done incredible things, uh, that has not only gone out and, and worked the gospel out in these uh, far-flung places, but it also sent support back, back to Jerusalem. And so as he arrives there, you'd think that he'd get a bit more of a welcome, but there's this nondescript group of brothers that come and informally welcome him, and yet the next day there is this formal setting where Paul is brought before them. Not an informal relational space, but it sounds more like a formal, come, let's debrief and gather together. And so, admittedly, there's a bit of conjecture here, but it's also in the context of what we see is unfolding and what's happening. And so, and so that's the first thing we see. It goes on and it says, <clears throat> um, Paul went with us gladly, all the brothers were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. And so you can imagine Paul coming and relating one by one the things that God had done. And so Paul would go from town to town, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Smyrna, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. And he would go uh, to places I haven't even mentioned. And he would go and he'd preach the gospel there. He'd look for a response. He'd see something of a response. He'd gather them together. He'd formalize something of that gathering. He'd begin to raise up leaders, form a church, and plant it out, raising elders. And, and so that was something of his strategy. And so I can imagine that in the course of his feedback around all that God had done, it must have been an incredible moment to kind of sit there and look in. Imagine that. Just being able to sit there looking and listen to the incredible feedback that Paul would have given. Not from a, a, a month-long mission trip to Madagascar, but years of service and what God had been doing. And so the response then we see uh, is it says, And they heard it, they glorified God. And so they glorified God. And I'm so pleased about that. They glorified God and they came... And I don't know what that looked like. Uh, in, in my mind, what would have maybe been appropriate in terms of glorifying God would have been, let's call the people in. Let's come and let's give um, something of a, a testimony to God's grace. Let's come and talk about stories of grace and let the other folk hear about what God is doing. But it's almost like a transitionary footnote which comes and says here, it says, and they've... Um, and when they heard it, they glorified God. 
Full stop. And then they said to him. And so there's a moving on that happens where they come and they say to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the Lord. And so what we have here is, on one hand, we've got Paul who comes. And when he speaks, what does he come and share? The first thing that he comes and says, and what he makes much of, is all that God is doing. And here we have the brothers in Jerusalem, who, to their credit, come and celebrate what God is doing. But it's now their opportunity to share. And what do they come and share? They come and share the moaning of the people. And so Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church had a problem. They had Jewish believers that were zealous for the Lord. That loved Jesus and they loved His cross, but they wanted to come and add the law of Moses onto that. And what is incredibly, incredibly sad is that this is the last time you hear of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. And what's incredibly sad is that here you have James who's the brother of Jesus, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who is navigating an incredibly difficult space of trying to land the gospel in a very Jewish context and culture, and he's trying to navigate it. And the inception of this church in Jerusalem was one, if you remember back to Peter and John, who were called before the Sanhedrin or before the high priests, and they said, what should we do? Should we listen to God or should we listen to man? And to their expense and to the persecution that they might face, they said, we're going to listen to God. And here we have these many, many, many years later, James in this incredibly difficult position trying to navigate these things, coming and saying, I'm listening to man. And the deep, deep sadness is that two years after this happened, James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred. And do you know what, for what charges? For what charges was he killed? For breaking the law. For the very thing he was trying to appease, he was convicted. And he could just not come and appease those that were calling for that. And so as we come and we look at the story, there's a couple of cockroaches here. A couple of cockroaches in this journey, in the outworking of this. And so the first cockroach is the cockroach of the wrong voice. Where these guys were coming, and whether they were conscious of it or not, they were listening to the voice of men, rather than to the voice of God. Yeah, that's the first cockroach I see. The second cockroach I see is that they were bowing and coming under the wrong pressure. Not only were they listening to the voices of man, and don't get me wrong, I think we do need to listen. I do think there needs to be a space where we are listening and we've got our ear to the ground of what's going on in the hearts of the people. But this wasn't that kind of listening. This was a, a listening that resulted in a pandering too. And so cockroach number one, they're listening to the wrong voice. Cockroach number two, 
They're coming under the wrong pressure. They're pandering. They're obeying the wrong voice. And then, secondly, sorry, thirdly, um, let me go through them again. The first cockroach is a cockroach of the wrong voice. The second is the wrong pressure. And the third is maintaining the wrong status quo. So what is the status quo? I don't know. Maybe you guys can help me. It's the standard level of expectations that you kind of work out and live out under. I don't know. Has someone got a a better explanation than that for me? Um, But essentially, they were maintaining the status quo. They were maintaining a level that was not the correct status quo. That was not the correct um, environment that God had for them. You see, what they were doing is they were trying to come and sustain a level or an environment that was the gospel or the cross plus the law. That was what was going on here. Now this week I I heard something fascinating. It was so good. I don't know who the guy is. I can't credit him. But this is not my own thought. I've, I've had this thought, but I haven't been able to articulate it as well as this. And so he said... Um, he said, all that the gospel requires, all the gospel requires is repentance and faith. And in that long pause, I know there are some of you that are saying, what about obedience? And here's the thing, is that the gospel requires, all that it requires of us is repentance and faith. But what it produces is obedience. It doesn't require obedience. And that's what these guys were getting wrong, is they're saying all the gospel requires is repentance and faith and obedience. And actually you're coming and gathering around the law and you're holding to the law to come and produce that obedience. And so we're busy preaching through the book of Songs in Egypt. It's very much a case of we didn't know what we didn't know when we started that book. <laughs> um, there's been quite a few times where it's been a bit hot under the collar and, and a lot of blushing going on. But it is an extraordinary book. It is stunning. It is beautiful. It is hands down my favorite book I've ever preached through. Because it comes and it brings us back to what is most important. And so Charles Spurgeon says that Song of Songs, in terms of Song of Songs, that, that, that all Scripture is holy, but Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Because all of Scripture comes and points to the relationship that we're called to, to have with God, but Song of Songs is the picture of that relationship. And so on the surface level, you've got the relationship between a man and a woman, which is actually on a deeper, more profound, more beautiful picture, the picture of the relationship of God with us, Christ and the Church. And so when we come and we say all we need is the gospel plus the law, is repentance and faith and obedience, we're coming and we're reducing it not to relationship but formal organization. But when we come and we say all we need is repentance and faith, you come to a space where you're drawn into a relationship with God and you're like, oh my goodness, repentance, this is who I am, where I've come from, what's living inside of me, faith in what? How do I save this? How do I redeem this? Faith in Christ. And it's, oh... It's so humbling that from that it comes and it produces obedience. And it's so subtle and it's so easy. 
And so God, I pray that you would not allow us as individuals and as a church to slip into obscurity, to come and to slip into compromise, to allow cockroaches to come in and to distract us. God, please, I pray that for this church, for these people, for your church. Amen. And so this is the one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, we've got Paul. So we've got this encounter of Paul with the Jerusalem church around about 60 AD. I think it's 59 AD or something. But Paul then gets arrested. So this encounter happens, he gets arrested. And on his way, as he's been arrested and taken out, there's a mob that falls. And in chapter 22, we pick up in verse 1, he stops the... The, the soldiers that have arrested him. And we read here and it says, he's now stopping and he's addressing the crowd. And he says, brothers and fathers, like, he's now been arrested for breaking the law effectively. And, and he stops and he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, so he's coming and he's meeting them where he's at, where they're at. And a huge credit to Paul, um, being all things to all people, he comes and he humbles himself to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. He says, okay, I'll go for it. I'll do that. Uh, and, and he's humbling himself. And even as he's going out here, he comes and he meets these folk where they're at. But he's subtly coming and saying, I am a Hebrew like you are, by coming and speaking their language. And then he goes further uh, and says, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, uh, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way. So he's coming and he's saying, I was like you. I know what it is. He's coming and he's identifying with him. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. So we know that from earlier in the book of Acts, from his Damascus Road experience, on the way to the church in Damascus to go and imprison and persecute believers there. And so now he alludes to this. He says, um, <clears throat> from them, the, the whole council of elders and the high priests, he received letters to the brothers and are journeying towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. So before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. This Damascus Road experience, his name changed. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting can I just pause there for a sidebar? When, whenever I come to this and read this, I just want to come and remind us that, that Jesus is saying here, He's saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? So if I come to Glenn and I slap him through the face, Glenn could say, why do you slap me through the face? But if I come... To Jen, I come and I slap her through the face. Can Glenn say, why do you slap me through the face? He can't technically. Can he come and say, why do you persecute me? He can't technically on that level. Yet Jesus is coming and saying, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? 
He's not the one who's been physically assaulted by Saul. And the reason is this, is that our understanding of the church is so limited and half-hearted that we reduce it to the four walls of a Sunday, to a building. Yet Jesus so deeply identifies with the church as his body, that when his body is inflicted, he feels inflicted. And in the midst of that, I cannot fathom or understand how people can come and say, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. You can't do those two. It's not, it's not possible. And I just don't like how, how we come and we've got such low levels and low views around the church. That we can come and, and say, I like this about this church, but not that. And I wish, I wish we had sexy coffee like you guys. <laughs> so, uh, that might have been a, from the overflow of my heart. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> or, or those folk that go from church to church to church to church, who are effectively coming and reducing it to a meeting to come and cater to their needs. needs. It's almost like prostituting the church. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Christ has got such a high view of the church and identifies so deeply with her that when she's persecuted, he feels persecuted. And we should be the same. We should hold the church in such high regard. That was a sidebar. That was extra. That was free. Sorry about that. And so... He goes on and he says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but not, did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do? And the Lord said to me, Rise up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And so this ends up happening. He goes there, he's prayed for, his eyes open up, and he's told that he's going to be God's tool to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's what unfolds there. And so we've got this situation here of Paul coming and recounting his coming to faith all those years before. But now it's, it's about 28 years later. And there's, a, there's an amazing thing that happened that we watch here. Is that we've got the Jerusalem church being birthed around about the same time as Paul coming to faith. It's about three years difference, I think. And so it's round about the same time. So they're both coming to existence round about the same time. And they're both birthed by the same person, Christ Jesus. Yet as we go forward, one is as zealous, if not more zealous, for the things of God all these years later. And the other is going off in a different direction that's now compromising, listening to and pandering to the pleas of the people. And so as we come and we look at this, we ask the question, why? And so we come back to those cockroaches. And so cockroach number one is the cockroach of the wrong voice. And so if there's a wrong voice, can I put to you that there is a right voice? And so Paul is coming here and he's alluding back to 25, 26, 27, 28, 29 years ago, his encounter on the Damascus Road. And... Number one, he's coming and saying, I heard the Lord speak to me then. And I think he's telling them as much as he's telling himself. In the midst of this crowd that wants to come and kill him, he's saying, I heard the Lord. He spoke to me. And if we come and we look at the journey and the trajectory of Paul's life, we've got again and again examples of him hearing from God. No, don't go into Macedonia. Oh, this morning my flesh, no, don't, don't. 
You need to know that my power is made perfect in your weakness. And we've got a history in Paul's life of him coming and putting himself in a place where he can hear God and hear from God. And he puts a premium value on that. And so I submit to you, number one, that's the main difference that we see here. Secondly, the second cockroach is the cockroach of the wrong pressure. And so, and so if there's such a thing as the wrong pressure, is it possible that there's such a thing as the right pressure? And I think sometimes when we come to faith and we've got a gospel that is preached as a prosperity gospel or this your life is going to be so much better kind of gospel when you come to faith is negligent of the fact that it's not always like that. In fact, in fact, if I just quote what I said moments ago, my power is made perfect in your weakness. God wants to draw us to our weakest point so that we can be most powerful in Him. And so, and so if there's such a thing as the wrong pressure, I believe there's such a thing as the right pressure. And so the wrong pressure in the situation with the uh, Jerusalem church is not only listening to the people, but pandering to what they want. That's the wrong pressure. Because you see, those people cannot come and sustain what they're calling or asking for. But the right kind of pressure is birthed out of listening to God. And so when you listen to God, you hear from God, and you obey God. But remember, the gospel doesn't require us obedience. It produces obedience. And so you come into that relational space with God, where you're hearing from God. The song of songs reality that takes us back to the Garden of Eden, where we are called to come and enjoy God, and to fellowship with Him, and be in relationship with Him. And from that, from hearing Him, from operating from a place of resting in God, we come and work out our obedience to Him. And I've got to tell you that when you hear God and you obey God, there is a pressure that's created there. And it's not easy. Number one, because there's a whole bunch of people that are resisting that. And number two, because we live in a fallen world that is completely anti the things of God. And there are spiritual powers and forces that will resist it. And, number four, because God knows in the midst of us going there, and that pressure, it humbles us and weakens us. And it's from that space that His great strength can come. And so there is such a thing as wrong pressure, but there is also such a thing as right pressure. And the third one is the wrong status quo. And so, and so, the wrong status quo is this one of coming and maintaining the gospel plus um, whatever you come and add on. You can add your poison and there's so many different things. But there is a right kind of status quo. You see, there is a status quo to the church. And that God comes and calls us to maintain. But it's not a stagnant status quo. It's not a stagnant environment. It's a vibrant environment. And so if you think of any living system, or any system in all of existence, it doesn't sit in a stagnant state. So you think of our own earth. It doesn't sit stagnant around the sun. It orbits around the sun. It orbits out and back in. Our own moon orbits around and back in our own earth. And so living systems, healthy systems, have a rhythm to them. And so you think of 
our own tidal system. The tides wash in and they wash out. Too much of one is bad. What's too much of one? It's a, it's a tidal wave. It's a tsunami that comes. It's got to be a natural rhythm. What about breathing? I breathe in. I breathe out. What about my blood and my body? It pumps in and it pumps out. And so there's a rhythm. And I submit to you that the wrong kind of status quo is that when you come and you settle and you focus on one thing. But the right kind of status quo is that there's a rhythm within a healthy, vibrant local church where it's not just sitting, parking out and camping and defending, this is our ground and we're going to keep it. But it's coming and understanding that there is a, a movement within that. And so, in all of this, I want to come and encourage us as individuals to prioritize that sweet song of songs relational space of being with God in order that we can hear God. It's so much harder than, than just saying it's tough, I get it. I live in that. But can we prioritize hearing the voice of God? Secondly, can we, out of a place of hearing God, find the courage to obey God and follow Him when He asks us to do stuff? And as we come and do that, I think that what we will hear God asking us and calling us to do is to come and maintain a healthy status quo within the life of the church. And if I had to come and explain what that looks like, and some of you would notice, it's kind of my pet thing, I think I come back to it again and again and again, is, is that if you had to reduce the purpose of a healthy um, ecosystem of a local church to its bare irreducible minimum, so I understand that it's more complex than this, but if we could just reduce it to the bare minimum, I think we would find two things at play. I think we would find discipleship and mission. And admittedly, I think that discipleship is all of that, but I don't have a word to come and separate discipleship out that does the word discipleship justice in the context of how we understand it. Because I think mission is also discipleship, but I want to separate the two and say that I think that within a healthy, vibrant local church, there's discipleship and mission. That there is a rhythm of discipleship and mission. Of breathing in, of breathing out. Of washing in, of washing out. Just as we see in all of life. And as I've kind of come back to this again and again, I realize that for us at Nugent, our purpose statement, our vision statement, comes in summarizes. Knowing God, making Him known. Knowing God, breathing in. Making Him known, breathing out. Washing in, washing out. And then I began to look at Scripture. And as I began to look, I began to see it again and again. And so we come and we look in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. God comes and says to him, I will bless you so that you might be a blessing to others. I will bless you, breathing in, so you can bless others, breathing out. What about Jesus being questioned around the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God, for your heart, mind, and soul. Everything that you've got, it's a breathing in. What's the second command? Love your name because you love yourself. It's breathing out. 
And even with Paul here on the Damascus Road, who are you, God, is his first question as a sidebar. That is perhaps the most important question anyone can ever ask. Who are you, God? And perhaps the most important thing about anyone is who they say God is. Because what you believe informs your values. And what your values are determines what's valuable to you and what you think about most. And what you think about most determines your actions. And so, really, your actions come and determine or show or are a glimpse of who you believe God is. And so possibly the most important thing about you is who you say God is. That's the breathing in. What shall I do? Go and be my tool, my vessel to the, to the Gentile people. He's breathing out. What about the, the, the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. There's the, there's the breathing out. What about the great omission that we forget just one verse later? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. There's the breathing in. There's the discipleship space. Or what about 1 Corinthians 15 that says, Paul saying again, I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. I delivered to you. He's breathing out. What he also received. There's the breathing in. There's the discipleship. There's the rhythm of discipleship and mission. Or even 2 Corinthians 5.18, all of this from uh, all of this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. There's the breathing in. There's the discipleship. And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. reconciliation to go out and reconcile others to Him. And so I come and I submit to you that the status quo of a healthy, vibrant local church is not stagnant and camped out in one area. But is moving. That is both coming and emphasizing discipleship and knowing God and going deeper with Him and being blessed, but also going out and blessing others and taking the gospel and sharing it and embracing the ministry of reconciliation. And so, essentially, what this means is my title of today's message is The Mission on Mission. First and foremost, in the context of discipleship, we were the mission. You are the mission. You are the happy beneficiary of a treasure far more valuable than anything conjured up in this world. Any treasure that you might imagine. The gospel is so precious. And you have been given this. You were the mission. But you've also been turned towards mission. And we've got a responsibility as the mission to make sure that we're hearing from God, that we're obeying God, but also that we come in and doing what God asks us to do, which is in part ensuring that we're discipling and going deeper with Him. But an aspect of that is also being missional, being outward focused. And the danger is this, is if we come and we park in one of these at the cost of the other, it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. And so if we park in on mission and we say, we're a missional church and that's all we do, we come and we create shallow, cliched, insincere, self-righteous believers with bumper sticker theology types. And whenever a word comes, the first thing they are thinking is, Yo, so-and-so needs to hear this word. So-and-so needs to hear this word. I wish so-and-so was here for this. And all they're ever thinking is about so-and-so. <laughs> and if we come... And we simply park it at, we are the mission. We create navel-gazing, can I quote you Pete? Blood-sucking, 
leeching parasites who are oxygen thieves. <laughs> that, that all they say is, wow, that was so good. I needed to do it. Incredible. I'm just going to, I'm going to meditate on this and just think about it for the next week and marvel at how beautiful this is without a thought for anyone else out there. And so, at the worst, these two things are terrible. But at the best, these two things coming together in the rhythm of washing in and washing out, of breathing in of breathing out, of discipleship and mission are extraordinarily beautiful and so, so very, very powerful. And so I want to come and just land this in a place and say that I understand that you guys are on the verge of starting an evening meeting. Well done. Well done. I want to give you all high fives. Bluetooth high five to all of you. Good job. Well done. You know what I see in that? Do you know what I see in that? I see you guys. It's not easy. It's a cost. There's a cost involved with it. So I see you coming and you say, God, what should we do? Come in under the right voice. Oh, you saying we should start an evening meeting? Oh, there's a lot of pressure to that. Yes. How are we going to do that? Do this and this and this and this. But, you know, who are we to listen to? To our own fears? The fears of man? Or are we to listen to God? So we come and we step out and we listen to God. And as you come and do that, there is a missional edge to that that's going to open up a vacuum, a space within this community that needs to be filled. People are going to be called to more. And so can I come and applaud you as a church for stepping out into this but also, can I come and call you, church, you individual, that you are a part of this. Come and put your shoulder to the plow. Come and get involved. Get stuck in. Come and hear from God. Come and obey God. And come on that adventure of breathing in, breathing out, of mission and discipleship. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father God, I thank you for this community, for this church, for these people, for the adventure they're on. Thank you, God, that they're coming into the space to ask you, what are you doing? What are you asking? What are you calling for? Thank you for that, God. Thank you also for their willingness to obey and to come under the, the pressure, the good pressure of relying on you and allowing you to sustain them. And God, I pray that as they step into this, that you would come and broaden them, that you'd create pockets that you're inviting people to come and participate in. And even now, God, I pray that there would be those saying, I want to step into more. I want to fill, fill some of the gaps. I want to come and be a part of this adventure. God, I pray that you would come and do that. I pray that you cause this community, these people to be blessed, and, um, for them to run in your favor, your goodness, your kindness, your grace. I pray that they would learn to understand and live in a space of sustaining of being sustained by you. You never call your people to anything you cannot sustain them in. And I pray, God, that it will come back to a sweet garden of Eden kind of relationship with you. That the hearing of your voice, the obeying and the courage to obey your voice, the coming and operating will all stem from a relational sweetness that they have with you. But even today, come and remind some of these folks how much you love them and how deep your relationship is with them. Mm-hmm.
come through your spirit and strengthen them, call them to more, remind them of prophetic words that they've banked years ago, thinking they've done. Remind them of those things today. Come and call them forward and may they hear a mighty force under the banner of Christ Jesus in this place. In Jesus' name, Amen.